Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. My name is Paul Reese Mandel. Hello, everybody. Eric Klein here. And I'm Jennifer Waits. On today's Radio Survivor, we're going to be talking about the COVID-19 outbreak and community radio. We're joined with our special guests, Ernesto Aguilar, Program Director at the National Federation of Community Broadcasters. Welcome, Ernesto. Howdy. And we're also joined on the line by Brian edwards Teekert co-host and producer of the radio program Upfront at KPFA in Berkeley, California. Hello. The reason we wanted to have both of you on, uh, Brian and Ernesto, is you each have a unique perspective on this uh, when it comes to radio. Brian, you've been reporting on the COVID-19 virus for KPFA, helping listeners understand it, while you're also at a community radio station. And community and college radio stations are unique compared to, say, commercial stations. And that you know, tens or dozens or hundreds of people can come through on any given day. And Ernesto, you work with member stations, community radio stations around the country, helping them understand policy and understand what to do. And I'm sure they're calling you every single day trying to find out how should they respond to this health crisis. And and Jennifer, I mean, this is an idea that you brought to us that we really should cover this. Yeah, I think, you know, I've been paying attention to what's happening at college radio stations in particular. And I think when when you have this, now a pandemic as of this week, stations are, are trying to figure out not only how to operate, but also what they should be doing on the air. So I'm, I'm glad that we have guests that can talk about those two aspects. And, and Brian, I think, first of all, it'd be really interesting to hear how KPFA, what do you think the responsibility is of a community radio station to be reporting on this sort of story? And and what have you been doing specifically to inform listeners? It's been interesting because it kind of see the story move through phases. Um, we, we started covering the COVID outbreak uh, when there were basically only recorded cases in China. And so, you know, there it was just kind of part of our, our general education mission. Uh, we were interviewing foreign correspondents uh, who were locked down in China, trying to report on the government's response and doing it as a science story, too, with public health experts at UC Berkeley, just kind of walking through what we know about the characteristics of the disease. As we started getting cases reported and confirmed in the United States, we switched much more to a kind of health education coverage? Like what information do you need to know uh, about protecting yourself and also being a responsible member of society? Um, so we've actually had a, a lot of varieties of uh, people who are different types of experts uh, rehashing advice about washing hands, social distancing, what do we know about the avenues of transmission, uh, how fast we expect the rate of spread to be. And it's just... Uh, the week that we're recording this, that we've really started covering this as a matter of social disruption. Right. And for the listeners uh, tuning in right now, we are recording on uh, Friday, March 13th. In all likelihood, you're listening to this on the week beginning uh, March 16th. So that's Brian is actually referring to the, the second week of March. Right. So so early on here in the Bay Area, uh, starting last week, actually, some of the big tech campuses started telling employees to work right. from home. Uh, Tuesday, University of California, Berkeley, which is a campus with more than 35,000 students, uh, suspended in-person classes. Uh, within the past couple days, major public school districts have started shutting down. The San Francisco Unified School District was the first to make the big announcement yesterday. They've got about 40, uh, 54,000 schools enrolled, students enrolled, rather. Right. Now, uh, that was now, following on uh, similar shutdowns in Washington State. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and, Seattle. I believe Seattle was one of the first major yeah. school districts to shut down. And then and Paul, also, and, um, Paul and I are here in Portland, and Portland follow, uh, all of Oregon followed uh, San Francisco and California's lead. But sorry, that's, and, that's just the, the news uh, information that, the, that we're all swimming in on this uh, particular day. Well, we're yeah, I mean, it, it was a flurry of school closure announcements, which are yeah. continuing today as we record in the San Francisco Bay Area. So the the point is we're we're kind of getting to the point from uh, at which we we've kind of done the science and health education part of our job and now we're facing widespread social disruption. 
uh, as a consequence of, of measures that are being put in place to limit the spread of the disease. And just kind of realized uh, in our editorial t- meeting today uh, that we have to start doing a lot more active listening to our audience to identify what their information needs are uh, and what kind of unforeseen uh, consequences all these measures are having on their lives. So we're going to be making a lot more space for call-ins. We've been doing some, but not every day. Uh, for call-ins and for unstructured call-ins on shows uh, in the weeks ahead. Well, that's where I want to turn to Ernesto Aguilar, who's the program director at the National Federation of Community Broadcasters. Ernesto, what is the unique role that community radio stations can play in the following weeks in this situation that we're now dealing with in the United States, North America? I think one of the most crucial roles that stations can play is in fact-checking and also combating misinformation about the spread of coronavirus. Uh, There are, if you look on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, lots of conjecture about what is causing the disease and also uh, potentially ways that people can get infected and ways that people can protect themselves. And I think stations can really play an important role in ensuring that the most accurate and credible information is available to a community beyond just washing hands, beyond social distancing, but really helping people understand what are some of the most uh, difficult questions that they may not get answers to. Uh, The organization Harkin has put out a really great engagement tool that stations are using now to intake listener questions, and then really sourcing those with experts to ensure that the most accurate information is available to people to reduce the amount of panic that is happening. So in order to avoid these kinds of panics that are happening, I think stations are doing their best right now to step into that role to ensure that there is a sense of cautious calm that is happening. Ernesto, one thing I've been thinking about is there, there are a lot of community and college radio stations that, or there are a number that really don't have, um, news or public affairs programming. It might be an all music station. Right. And are you offering advice or suggestions for how those stations should should handle the dissemination of information or should they? For those stations that don't really have a news department or are primarily music stations, in my opinion and the opinion of NSCB, I think it's most important for those stations to be connected with their local city, county, and state emergency responders. There are already emergency response teams that are set up uh, usually through city hall or through police or through firefighters and trying to be a conduit of information and just to be on a first to know basis with those leaders to ensure that if there's something happening in the county or the state or the city that they are able to communicate that to their listeners as they need and also to participate on media calls. Many cities are doing daily media calls right now around what's happening in relationship to schools, churches, cultural events, and also potential cases that may be happening in a county or a city. So I think for those stations that don't really have the infrastructure to do news, and present that to do the outreach locally to their communities for organizations that are already providing it. Also, it's good to try to create relationships with other media organizations. Many times in situations like this, those other larger media organizations are happy to share content or do trades or provide extra information to a station that might not be able to provide news coverage, but they want to ensure that there's a pu- they're doing the public service that they are all dedicated to, whether you're a for-profit or a non-profit media organization, chances are you got into this business to ensure that you're making a difference to the public. And those organizations understand that, and they, if they are working with a college station or a community station, oftentimes they're more open in a situation like this to help those stations provide the coverage that they need. And it seems like collaboration is a really good idea right now. At at college, a number of college radio stations are on campuses that are shutting down, closing dorms, um, limiting the number of people that can come through the station doors. And and so I think that's a lot of what I'm hearing is stations who are trying to figure out how they're going to do programming if they don't have students on campus and and are they going to be able to have programming? Right. It would be an interesting story for you to follow, Jennifer, since you since you watch college radio so closely, the community is what kind of radio are they even allowed to make and 
are their communities still being able to tune in if they're off campus? Brian Edwards Teekert, I wanted to throw to you a question about um, information hygiene. We've been talking about trying to make to use the radio, the privilege of community radio, to disseminate the best possible types of information to keep people informed during uh, such large events as this, a pandemic. What kind of news hygiene tips would you offer producers? Um, well, you know, obviously, if you're putting out health information, make sure you're getting it from people who know what they're talking about. Uh, we're fortunate to have the highly prestigious public health school at UC Berkeley right around the corner. Uh, they kept us well stocked with experts. Uh, <laughs> same goes for Stanford. Um, it's actually been very hard for us to get through to actual public health officials whose job it is to respond to the outbreak just because they have been so slammed with requests. Uh, they're usually limiting themselves to uh, like one telepress briefing per day, which is not terribly useful to us when we want live interaction. So we're going through academics. Um, the other thing is to really resist any impulse you have to sensationalize or sex up the news. Like it's it's um, very scary what's happening and also very destructive to panic people about it. Uh, and one thing as we've kind of tried to, to navigate this one decision at a time is that has really steered us away from doing any significant amount of coverage of the White House. Um, there is not useful information coming out of the White House. Uh, if you're just kind of dunking on Trump's press briefings, you have to repeat the misinformation for the purpose of debunking it. And that's just not actually useful. Um, so what's happening in the White House right now pretty much stays in our news headlines and doesn't come up much at all in our interviews where we're trying to focus on actually useful information. As Mr. Rogers said, focus on the helpers. And uh, that, yeah, covering covering the news out of D.C. might not be focusing on the helpers. You know, going on that there, Brian, you know, it's interesting because, you know, you, you were working in the news department. You're a journalist. Um, and yet, you know, at your station and, of course, at college community stations across the country, there are hosts who, who do not have journalistic training who are doing music, but often a hallmark of doing this sort of radio is its freeform nature and hosts are free to comment on the news of the day, often in right. their own style or, or make offhanded comments. Um, and I wonder, do you know, at, at KPFA, are you making any sort of advisory? Do you know of an advisory to other staff on state on, on the radio who are not news folks, but, you know, in, in that spirit of, of not wanting to inspire panic? Uh, no, I haven't seen anything. You mean like like from a station management level, yeah, yeah. counseling programmers? I haven't seen anything go out like that. You know, I like to think um, my coworkers are all very smart, yeah. very responsible and experienced broadcasters. And this is a kind of consideration uh, that we always have in, in a breaking news environment and that you want to have built an organization where the people who have access to the airwaves have that kind of judgment. Um, I, I imagine we would have seen a policy memo if there had been particularly <laughs> bad on-air incidences by now. Uh, sure. But, but I haven't. And I mean, in regards to another sort of policy, you've been reporting on this story for a while now, Brian. What what has that transition been like where now you're at a station where people are probably paying more attention to practices in the studio related to preventing the spread of coronavirus in well, California. Yeah, since we were researching the segments really heavily, uh, we were the ones who actually uh, started the conversation with management about what we needed to do as a station uh, to protect ourselves, and not just to protect ourselves, but to protect our ability to broadcast, right? So we had to do some kind of scenario modeling. So one is obviously uh, everyone at the station gets sick, and that's awful. But short of that, um, let's say my wife gets a sniffle. Well, then I can't come into the building because I'm a possible transmitter, right? Best practice would be for me to quarantine, uh, but I would still want to be able to broadcast as long as I'm not sick. So one of the first conversations we had uh, with our engineering department was kind of a dry run of the tech I need to make a live connection to the studio uh, from, from my home studio setup. Which is a wonderful yep. beginning for other uh, people at the station to use the same, the same techniques and resources. Exactly. Um, the second thing we had to talk through was, well, what, what are all the things we can do to limit the chances of 
you know, basically an outbreak at our station, either a lot of people getting sick or a lot of people uh, having to self-quarantine because they've been in contact with someone who came through the studios who turned out to be sick. Um, so first thing we did, we canceled all our public events. Uh, we do about uh, 20 author events a year, and uh, spring book tour season is just ramping up. Uh, that was an easy call because ticket sales were disappearing anyway. Uh, second thing we did is uh, we canceled all large trainings and meetings that we had scheduled inside the station. So, you know, KPFA is kind of like a, a learning hospital. In any given evening, usually our classes are in the evening. Uh, you might have 20 or 30 people sitting in our performance studio uh, getting trained up on something. Um, third thing is we've been working through uh, making whatever accommodations we can for people who are able to work from home to do so. So now about half the reporters in our news department, they're mostly volunteers, uh, are filing from home. Comes down to a question of, you know, what what tech and equipment people have access to and what level of comfort they have with it. And we're figuring out what accommodations we can make here. Uh, on my program, uh, our producers are still coming in. Our, our interns are working from home now. Uh, and we'll probably have more people working from home next week. And finally, we, we made the decision uh, at the start of this week to no longer book any guests for in-studio interviews. Um, you know, it's a tough one. Obviously, the, the kind of sound of warm studio presence is yeah. something that signals you're, you're part of the community and this person is here. Um, but a lot of the people we book for in-studio interviews, you're talking about like authors on book tour, you know, they've been on a plane, they've been through airports, they've been shaking hands at public events, and then they come in, they sit in a room with poor air circulation four feet away from you for an hour, uh, and then 15 minutes off the, after they're off the microphone, someone else is on it. Uh, you'll, need a disposable, you'll need a disposable studio situation mm -hmm. where, where, anyway, that's not going to happen. Uh, Ernest, uh, that was the voice of Brian Edwards Seekert, who is the host of the morning show up front at KPFA in Northern California, and we're also on the line with Ernesto Aguilar, who is the program director at the National Federation of Community Broadcasters, which represents community radio. And I'm wondering, Ernesto, if uh, you have anything to add to this idea of uh, community radio stations are, by their nature, when they're working the way they should be, they're open. And uh, now we're dealing with an unprecedented situation that uh, many community spaces need to close down. Uh, close their doors to the community. Is there any advice you can offer on how to strike a balance where uh, you might close the doors but still keep um, keep channels of communication open uh, with your radio station community? It is happening quite a bit in a lot of areas. As Jennifer pointed out, there are a number of university stations that have opted to close their doors or universities rather that have decided they're going to send students home and university stations that are having to adapt to that. But similarly, there are a lot of community stations that are either uh, deciding they're going to limit access and set up new rules. Uh, traditionally, as you point out, there are a lot of stations that welcome in lots of folks. And so stations, just because of uh, concerns about health, have decided they're going to try to limit guests or try to make sure that health protocols are put in place so people are reminded to wash their hands, they're reminded to wipe down uh, consoles and other areas they may be touching before and after their shifts and just in general practice their own uh, set of safety rules. Also, this, there's an encouragement that we at NFCB give to managers as well to make sure to address your cultures because I think there are a lot of people within community radio that are very dedicated to what they do and sometimes there's a feeling of guilt if you don't show up and mm. if you're the person that doesn't come in, you feel a little bad. And so I've talked to managers who say, you know, I am always the one who comes in, but part of the reality is people respond to unconscious or silent peer pressure. So if the manager shows up, then everybody else has to show up and who knows who's been in contact with someone sick. And so you also have to check ourselves in a case like this and say, okay, how am I modeling the most appropriate behavior to step away when needs when I need to step away and stay home when I need to stay home? so that other people will take that signal and for the best interests of everybody involved and for the longevity of everybody and the station, um, we exercise the appropriate security and safety protocols so that this station continues for 
the years to come. Right. It's good advice for every workplace, not just right. radio stations. But it, it's a leadership question at that moment is, is basically how you're laying that out. And it, there is the leadership within the station where I might suggest that, you know, it's even a, a case in which a manager may want to call upon some of the more trusted volunteers who, who also people look to, right? Because there usually are folks who've been around longer who are well-respected to also help model that behavior, right? You, you, you can't do it all alone. You can't real, only rely on staff. And for many stations, staff might only be one or two people. Yeah, and it's important for a station to look at setting up a response team, uh, bringing in the people who are trusted, as you point out, people who are around. It does need to be a, a, a large, large group of folks, but it can be kind of a medium-sized group of folks who can help a station to assess a situation and who can be backups when backups are needed. Yeah. As well, I think it's important for a station to, as Brian pointed out, really give some serious thought to its infrastructure. Sometimes stations haven't really educated volunteers about recording at home. And if you're in a community where that education isn't happening, a station sometimes has to step it up very quickly and train people on how to do that, but also how to intake files. Is it, And it can be as simple as a Google drive folder or a Dropbox folder or something like that. But uh, what kind of protocols are available for a volunteer who doesn't feel safe or who is ill and can't necessarily been exposed to somebody? How can they uh, participate in the station? Uh, in addition, I think there are just a, a need for a station to also understand uh, how it trains its volunteers uh, to interact with the public. Um, as we pointed out a little bit earlier, it's very easy for for misinformation to spread. And as Brian pointed out, his organization doesn't necessarily have a policy. And there are a lot of organizations that don't have policies for how people are distributing information. So you may make an inappropriate joke or trying to be funny, or you may spread something online or say something on the air that you haven't fact-checked somewhere. So think about those kinds of situations where people may mean well, but in fact, that can contribute to this heightened sense of anxiety. So it's important for a station to also think about uh, the safety and the infrastructure on air as well as internally inside the building. Ernesto, you know, thinking about that, I mean, and I, when I sort of posed the question about what goes on on the air, I mean, I, I was coming from the place of thinking that folks would be well-meaning, right? So not, not thinking of somebody who intends to cause panic. And, and just thinking of my own behavior, it's very easy to make a joke uh, sometimes and realize, um, oh, wow, yeah, maybe that, maybe this isn't really a joking matter. And it's one thing when it's you're talking to somebody one-on-one or you're talking with a group right. of people, but another thing when you're talking to hundreds or thousands over the airwaves. And uh, I mean, another serious concern with the community radio station, college radio station, is that uh, the phone will ring and sometimes it's, uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure of the format that you can put community members uh, on the air so that they can talk. I mean, at the beginning of our conversation, Brian Edwards Teekert was mentioning that the morning show at KPFA is going to start taking more listener calls. Yeah. How do you manage that, Brian? Uh, what's, what's, what, what are some best practices there in making sure that, that folks have an opportunity to be heard, to ask their questions, but also trying to make sure that you're not inadvertently helping in the spread of, of yeah, misinformation? Giving the megaphone to the wrong thoughts. Yeah. I mean, generally our approach to, to call in segments when we do them. Um, is that what we want is people speaking or asking questions from their direct experience, um, not holding forth on issues. So a lot of that uh, goes into the framing question that you put out requesting mm. calls. Um, what, what you put out is often what you get back. And part can of you, that can you give me an example? I, I think I think we could, uh, this is some real practical advice I think uh, folks could use. Yeah, so, so you know, Monday morning when we're taking calls after our 7.30 news break, uh, the framing question is going to be some version of, uh, if you work in the schools or have kids in the schools, we want to hear about how this week's school closures are impacting you and what questions you need us to look into getting answered for you. Got it. Call so right rather now. than like a blanket, what do you think of this virus? Yeah. Uh, yeah. What do you think of this pandemic? Because when you make a very open very request for calls yeah. like that, uh, 
you get huge demographic skewing. We almost always get a preponderance of older men who think it is very important for everyone to hear their opinion. Uh, and we get rantier callers. Uh, and when you ask people to speak from experience, the calls are more interesting. Um, they really add to the discussion. They help us understand the community that we're yeah. serving better. Um, and then we, you know, we also screen. Um, we, we have a producer in to kind of vet callers. Um, mostly that's because any radio station tends to accumulate a number of chronic callers who have the station on speed dial. Um, and it's not that we don't want those folks to be able to get on the air. Uh, we just don't want them to be the only people who are on the air. So we, we kind of throttle chronic right. callers. We, we keep a list. We know their caller IDs. We know their names. And, you know, you, you get on, but you get on once a month. And this thing Let that the Brian just through. this 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 kind of question that Brian described, where you ask someone for their experience to share, I think is one of the important uh, uses of community radio in this media landscape where we live. And it's all too rare on uh, the other forms of media that have the resources to do it, but sort of choose not to for for all of their myriad reasons. Asking uh, people what their experiences are mm -hmm. of the events of the day. Yeah, I think the thing I, I, I think the, is what, the way Brian lays it out to, to really frame it in terms of people's experience rather than just their opinions uh, is very helpful as well. You know, I, I'm thinking of the, the station that has less experience doing call-ins. Right, uh, maybe don't do call-ins. That at don't all, do call-in right? yeah. or don't do them often, or or you know, or or you know, again, I'm thinking of you know, music hosts who, who who are trying to kind of branch out what they do in this moment when they're feeling pressed, yeah, and decide to open up up the phone lines, um, you know, and maybe you know, how what kind of advice do you do you advise that stations give their staff? In, in this sort of time, are, are you getting these questions, um, Ernesto in particular, because you're with the National Federation of Community Broadcasters, people turn to you for advice on right. how they should do things. You know, what, what, well, what, what, what are you saying with regard I, to how uh, a station should, should be handling, especially listener call-ins and these sorts of things, when maybe they don't already have like a call-in show that has a screener, when they've already developed kind of a process to, to deal with it? Call-in radio is just one of these things that I think allows people to get in touch with each other. And so I think that the impulse is natural for a lot of stations in this time where passions are heightened and fears are heightened to open up the lines and give people a chance just to express their concerns and their worries and what's happening with their families and such. And so this is a very popular kind of thing. But the thing that I come back to with every station in having these conversations is before you decide to do that, uh, do it with some intention. Give right. some serious consideration as to what you hope to achieve with this conversation and what you're hoping to, to do with this for the community as well. And this goes back to exactly what Brian said, I think you really need to seed these conversations well. If you bring a host on who's going to be shooting from the hip, having various side comments about all kinds of things, you're going to tend to draw those kinds of calls. If you're trying to have an informed conversation where you're giving on information that's happening in your county or your city or your state. You're trying to bring on some guests who might be able to set the table, so to speak, with an informed conversation. You're not going to always stop every random conspiracy theory that wants to get on the air, but you're certainly going to invite a much more robust conversation to the table with a lot of callers that are really interested in having a, a discussion that is relevant to them and relevant to their community. Ernesto, one thing that I, I mentioned earlier and I keep thinking about as you're, as you're talking through this is, you know, radio stations that, that really only play music and their listeners only expect music from them. I, I wonder in moments like this if, if those stations really, if it's best for them to stick to that uh, because that, provides some sort of relief to to people who maybe need a break from from all the news of the day if 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 the purpose of your station is purely entertainment um, and music but what do you think about that and are you having those conversations about you know do you really stick to what you do best uh, for folks who who need a break from from all the news 
We are talking with a lot of college and community stations that are exactly that. They're primarily music stations, and this is what they do. And my advice to all of those stations is simply this. Um, While you think about the news and the importance of what it does for ourselves and ensuring that we are safe, music and culture provide a solace. They provide a shelter for all of us when times are difficult, when we feel fearful or uncertain. Sometimes we get through those difficult times uh, through a favorite song. I think all of us has had that experience at some point or another. So it's important for a station to stay the course in that way and provide what the community values of you. Um, But also if you feel urgently that you should spread your wings, so to speak, and provide more information and more experiential conversations around this. Think about what feels most in keeping with what your listeners expect of you. Uh, There are stations, for example, that will do a blog on their website of current news updates, and it doesn't need to be fully written articles. Maybe this is a city update or a county update or a state update or links to news news stories that are happening that are periodically updated. Maybe it's in the form of PSAs that remind people about what health precautions they should be taking or if there are screening facilities in their area. Those kind, That kind of information is crucial. It doesn't need to break your entire format. You don't need to suddenly start recruiting a well-spoken journalist who can lead up these newscasts and lead up this kind of programming, or you don't have to suddenly train up students if you're with a college station to really discern questions and conversations they should be having, but this is a way that your station is able to do this. So maybe it's online, maybe it's on social media, maybe you do a live stream where you answer questions with a health expert on Facebook or Instagram or you do this on Twitter. However you may do this, your station can certainly interact in these kinds of ways, but please do not ever sell short your value as a music station in what you provide to a community. Because sometimes when all the news is screaming at you that you should be panicked and fearful and running and buying up every roll of toilet paper you can, sometimes that music station gives us a chance to take a step back and breathe. And so please value those kinds of things too. I am going to suggest that someone do a call-in show about people's favorite songs. Yeah. Right. I think that opening the phones during this time of social distancing, as well as a heightened community anxiety, uh, with the intention again of of cooling feelings, but also supporting each other, um, it's a wonderful reason why radio exists. And I think that stations that do music with the intention of um, holding that space for the community, not not making space for uh, for people to tell everyone what they think, but what they are thinking, what's going on in their what lives. What they're feeling in yeah. some ways. You know, yeah. I, I want to add one more thing on, on the topic of good information, if that's okay. Yeah, I, I was going to, I was gonna, I actually wanted to ask you about that. And, and especially because, you know, Ernesto mentioned using a website or social media, what role that can play. Right. So should, please go ahead. We Brian. should tell listeners that um, we're speaking with Brian Edwards Teekert, who is the host of the morning news program at KPFA in Northern California. So uh, the thing I want to underline is that uh, in a a rapidly breaking news environment, um, you almost certainly at some point will will put something that's wrong on the air. Um, We have had experts do that. I I have had to correct a very august public health academic on a a relatively small thing he said. Um, And that is okay. I, I think it is more important that you take responsibility for that, that you correct it as soon as you can. And also that you are constantly signaling that the truth is something that is knowable. I think one of the hazards um, of our present news environment, uh, wherein hoaxes and disinformation proliferate online, uh, and the president seems to have no concern uh, with whether the things he says are at all grounded in facts, is that there's the possibility of a kind of gradually emergent social consensus that the the truth is just not knowable, subscribe to whatever narrative is most convenient to you. So every step you take, like if someone calls in with a question, 
stopping yourself before you speculate about the answer and say, that's a really good question. We're going to look into that. Who's here who will call and we'll report out what we find later. That's signaling that the facts are out there and there's a way to get at them. And that is just as important as having the facts at your fingertips. Same thing goes with correcting something that you or one of your guests got wrong on the air later. It's saying that the truth is knowable and we take accountability for getting it right or getting as close to it as possible. Uh, And I think it's really important for people to have a grounded understanding, not just of what's happening, uh, but of the fact that that, that what's happening is ascertainable. Uh, You know, I think that's a great thing to point out, Brian. And, And one of the interesting things about radio still compared to lots of other media is that it is still relatively ephemeral. Right. I mean, to what extent is it important, really, that if you have a misstated fact on the air, that it's sort of off in the ether to a large extent and you can correct it and not repeat it? That seems to me to be kind of an important distinction to radio compared to Twitter, where unless someone deletes it and even then not so much so, uh, you know, uh, a misstatement can can kind of live forever. You know, how important is that, you know, and, and how do we how do we work with that, you know, in that environment? Right. So on the radio, you're able to correct it. And yet um, stations are on social media. They're often, you know, stations that do news are paralleling messages out on social media, Facebook or Twitter. I mean, how does this all fit together? How do you how do you as a station work your social media responsibly, you know, in the parallel with trying to make sure the message on, on the radio is responsible? Honestly, I got to say the worst stuff I've seen, and and we have listeners continually sending us stuff, the worst stuff I've seen has actually come through basically chain emails. Um, I I think the social social platforms are taking some amount of responsibility for intervening in hoaxes and grifts on their platforms. Uh, And there are often like fact squad pylons when people are putting out really bad information on on Twitter and Facebook. Stuff can catch up back to their accounts. But you still see people forwarding emails that if you know what to look for are just so clearly hoaxes. You know, they're attributed to unnamed people inside the Stanford Medical Department uh, just saying there are bonkers things you can do to protect yourself against the disease or coming from the right. There's a variant saying, um, you know, completely anonymously based on credentials that are impossible to verify that there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that the disease was released by a Chinese biowarfare laboratory. Um, and actually, you know, email and email has been a forum for the proliferation of those things for uh, pretty much as long a- as emails existed. Um, doesn't have the checks so it's sort of comforting that it's uh that the that the the contagion is coming from the chain email not from mark zuckerberg's facebook yeah and i think partly you know the the social platforms have been working to kind of figure out uh safeguards since the 2016 election and i also think they were particularly hamstrung when it comes to election propaganda because they don't know how to define the line between picking a side in politics and stopping the spread of disinformation. And it just seems much clearer around like a specific health crisis wherein uh, most of the answers uh, are out there <laughs> and kind of definable in a binary way. Right. So, so your tips are if you, if you a, your, receive a chain email or if a listener is sharing something and you find out that their source is from this chain email, uh, step one is just to put that question f- foremost in listeners' minds that the chain email is a is a very easy uh, source of information to to be polluted by by all sorts of bad actors. And what kind of education, I mean, are you giving listeners, Brian, or what do you recommend that you can do? Because you mentioned early on, you know, the the problems associated with repeating the misinformation in order to to refute it and that you're still repeating it. So are you are you like specifically around, you know, these emails that appear to be going around, are you addressing that with your listenership and or is there a way that you would you would advise no, I, people to try to deal ba- with it? I write back to people when they write in. I write back to everyone who writes in with what looks like hoax content. Um, and I gently try to explain not just that as far as we can tell it's wrong but what the signs are that flag to me that it's unreliable information mm-hmm. so hopefully mm-hmm. they're more educated about it but no i would never repeat it on air for right. the sake of debunking it so right. instead that, that yeah. would just inadvertently amplify it 
So it basically you're you're doing that almost in you're doing it in a one to one space then, right? Folks are are forwarding you these things, uh, you know, in the hopes of maybe that you will, you know, they think they're doing something good by letting the journalists know about this, and you're responding directly back to these individual listeners. Yeah, and often they say, oh, I'm going to pass this on to the person who sent me this email in the first place. So, you know, we, That's great. we hope the intervention goes beyond them, yeah. What do you think, Brian, what do you think people should be asking of their own local community and college radio stations during during this kind of unprecedented time? You mean like what what, what does it mean for a radio station to rise to the occasion? Exactly. Well, I think it's a, a bigger question about media, at, at least as I grapple with it. Um, and that is, are we giving enough attention to the people who are most vulnerable during a crisis like this? Uh, I think one of the conceits that happens in media and journalism uh, is those of us making the news and broadcast the news assume the people we are uh, broadcasting to are in roughly the same situation as we are, right? Uh, so the implications of a lot of messages and a lot of stories like, hey, Uh, stay at home if you have any cold symptoms. Well, what's the implication? The implication is that you have a home to stay in. Uh, We have over half a million unhoused people in this country. And that's been a focus uh, of our coverage in the Bay Area, the homelessness crisis up to this point. So we're devoting some amount of resources uh, to figuring out what's happening in, in our unhoused encampments and also what cities are changing about how they're dealing with them. Uh, San Jose has just issued a moratorium on street sweeps. Uh, it makes no sense to be dislodging people and making them more unstable during a public health crisis. Things like hand-washing stations are easier to deploy if people are in a fixed place who are sleeping outside. Um, We've been pressing public officials in other cities about uh, when they're going to make the decision on following suit. Um, we're, we're trying to put together a segment around disability justice considerations, uh, during isolation protocols, what happens to people who are reliant on home health care workers or assistants, uh, to live independently, uh, what risks does the fact that those people pass in and out of their home pose to people who are immunocompromised, uh, or in one of the high risk groups for having fatal complications from the coronavirus infection, Um, So kind of, you know, being hyper aware that there's not an average way people are impacted by a pandemic, people are impacted in specific ways. uh, And they're probably not the same as you, the, the person who has the means to be on the microphone and broadcasting is. Yeah, that's really, that's really helpful and important information for all of us to think about and 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 something that was certainly on my mind with with school closures and um, that that students in in schools come from a variety of different home situations and some of them don't have homes and while some parents uh, you know may feel like oh the schools are closed I'll just keep my kids home it's it's complicated if if you don't have childcare if you don't have a home. Et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. If you're broken, your kid's getting like two of their meals a day from the school. Exactly. So, yeah, this, the, the implications uh, are so broad for things that, that might on the surface seem simple to people who are, who are privileged. Well, you are listening to Radio Survivor. Uh, that last voice you heard was Jennifer Waits, co-host of the show. My name is Eric Klein. I'm here with Paul Reismandel. We are on the line with Brian Edwards Teekert, host of the morning show at KPFA called Upfront, and also Ernesto Aguilar, who is the program director at the National Federation for Community Broadcasters. We're talking about the COVID-19 pandemic and its impacts on radio, both inside the workplace of radio as well as outside in the communities that the radios serve. And uh, we're recording on Friday, March 13th, and broadcasting uh, the, the week following that day. A question I wanted to kind of throw out here, and I'll start with you, Ernesto, is, you know, stations are having to balance the safety of their volunteers and their staff with the service that they're providing to the communities. And we're showing how, you know, I think we're seeing how radio is is maybe even more important when, when people especially are not going out in public as much, and maybe they are at home more or, or uh, you know, not leaving their cars when they are traveling in a lot of different ways. And, you know, how do you help stations think about balancing those two things? The fact that maybe they feel guilty about having to 
uh, go to automation as opposed to have a live host in studio or for some college stations who may be in a situation in which they, they, they don't have a backup and their campuses are closing and they're going to turn off the transmitter. How do you advise them to kind of think about this and help them through and feel like they're making the right decision? In a lot of these cases, uh, some stations are scrambling to get automation together, and there are automation systems that stations can pick up um, for various rates or free in some cases, although those are a bit of a learning curve. But in a case where a station just has run out of time and didn't have these contingencies in place, the thing I always come back to for those stations is use this as a learning opportunity uh, for your students, for your community, and for your volunteers to begin to think about what happens in the next potential emergency that your community may face. In Northern California, they've been faced with wildfires. In Texas, there have been hurricanes, and in the South, there have been hurricanes, floods, all kinds of things that have uh, threatened radio stations uh, to stay on the air. So uh, don't despair too, too much, but really try to focus on beginning to build up an emergency response for your organization. What are your volunteer protocols? Um, Who are the people who are are most necessary in the event that a station is going to either go off the air or might, may get lost if a volunteer can't make it in due to a an illness or a flood or a fire or their home has been destroyed. Who's the person who steps up next? Um, do you have an automation system that can help your station take on those kinds of burdens when you don't have anybody available? Think about how this station can function uh, if there's only one person who can really deal with anything, and maybe that's just the engineer. Uh, While we can all be upset that these things uh, end up happening, they can really be a spark to help us all be more prepared and be better the next time something else may come around. Right, And I think for some, there's some stations that really pride themselves on having live live folks in the studio 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And and I think this is probably a bit of a wake-up call to those types of stations who have always eschewed automation that, you know, there may be instances where every station needs to have a plan for automated programming. It's funny, you brought up the exact phrase I was thinking up, which is wake-up call. There are quite a few community radio stations that have said we're doing local, nothing but local, live people, live guests, live hosts, and all those kinds of things as a badge of honor. And that's a good thing. That's a nice thing in a lot of ways. But what happens when people are afraid and can't come in? What happens when people are sick or something like this happens or a fire or something really serious happens and people can't come in? Uh, I was a program director at KPFT for over a decade, and we ran into situations where uh, people felt like they couldn't come in because of flooding. And so people would end up being on the air for six and eight and 10 hours. Uh, That's an unusual circumstance, clearly, for most stations. But what happens when, and depending on what you read for the news, this situation with the coronavirus could continue for some time. So what kinds of ways can you begin to address the potential that there could be an illness that visits your community? And if it has not yet, this is your opportunity to begin to really think about those kinds of things. And while you certainly want to honor that independent spirit of live and local and no automation, what happens when nobody's available? And how do you continue to broadcast what you do and what your listeners love? Because ultimately, I think listeners really do like that aesthetic but they also want a radio station. So you need to figure out that how can you maintain that taste and that flavor of what you do with those kinds of systems. And that's a larger conversation for any organization, but you've ultimately got to have that pretty soon because these things, unfortunately, don't go away. If it's not coronavirus, it could be a disaster that impacts your community, and how are you thinking ahead? Yeah, that is the voice of Ernesto Aguilar of the National Federation of Community Broadcasters. We also have been joined this past hour with Brian Edwards-Teekert, a host of the morning show at KPFA, which is known as Upfront there in Northern California. Brian, I know that you have a very busy schedule and uh, you have to leave. Thank you so much for joining us on Radio Survivor. Yeah, nice talking with you all. Good luck. Thanks, Thanks, Brian.
running up to this uh, recording this show here, we uh, put out the questions to our readers and our listeners to Radio Survivor, folks, especially working at stations. You know, what kind of response is your radio station, whether it's a college station, university station, or community station? What's it? What what's going on there? Um, and and how are what what are you? If you're a volunteer, there, what are you being advised to do? You know, basically with regard to to the hygiene at the station itself, and and we got some responses there. Jennifer? Yeah. Um, you know, we heard from, from people, we heard from somebody at Calix at UC Berkeley that they were canceling in-person meetings and trainings, um, as well as live bands and, and no live interviews uh, that everything would be done remotely if you have guests, um, and that they're limiting the number of outside guests and the number of people at any given time. And, and one thing I thought was really interesting is that they're also waiving the number of volunteer hours required because that's something that is common at a lot of college radio stations where, you know, all the DJs and volunteers are required to do a certain amount of work um, in order to be a part of the station. So um, I thought that was, you know, in thinking about Ernesto talking about leadership, showing leadership and giving people permission to step back if they need to and staying home if they're not feeling well. Um, I think waiving volunteer requirements is is an interesting idea. Um, and we also heard from people at stations where they hadn't really heard much guidance from station leadership yet, which is an important reminder that that stations probably do need to be laying out plans. Um, by the time we're recording this, I hope they are. Earlier in the week, you know, the week that we recorded this, things have changed changed so rapidly that in in my conversations with stations, things they told me earlier in the week had changed dramatically by the end of the week. So, yeah, and an important detail is that in my experience, maybe Ernesto, you can you can uh, you can check me on this, is that uh, you know, in the absence of information folks will often fill in their own details and they'll make their own assumptions and they'll make their own assumptions about what's expected of them. And often they'll make assumptions about why there hasn't been information. So if leadership is not out there saying, okay, here's what little we know and here's what we're going to ask you, but we may be following up tomorrow. We may be following up tomorrow. You'll be hearing from us a lot on this as we try to adapt to what's going on. Because I know maybe sometimes there's the impulse to say, well, we're uncertain right now, so we don't want to go out and make a call. We don't want to communicate. But the lack of communication itself when working with a staff communicates something you don't intend it to communicate. Does that make sense, Ernesto? Do you, do you see that? And do you advise folks to, to kind of try and uh, get out there and, and, you know, if you're station management or even volunteer leadership to, to get out there and say, we may not know much, but here's what we know? First and foremost, I have to thank Jennifer for bringing up what some of the college stations are doing. And this is, I think, why college radio is such an important part of community radio, because oftentimes they end up taking the lead in safety because they're dealing with students. They're dealing with students who are there to learn uh, as a part of a radio station. And so they are extra careful with the the lives of these young people that participate on a campus campus and set of protocols relatively quickly. I've talked with several college stations that have done very similar kinds of things. They decided to limit the number of people who come in and decided to make sure that signs are put up and that protocols are put in place so these students and community members who come into the station are safe in a situation like this. But to your point, Paul, and I think Brian pointed this out as well with particular people who always want to share their opinions, uh, sometimes people will end up connecting the dots on their own. Uh, sometimes for the good, based on what they see online on a CDC website or a health website, they'll try to be helpful as they can, but sometimes maybe not take all the precautions that they should um, because maybe they have incomplete information. And so therefore, it's important for every station leader, exactly as you pointed out, to try to get ahead of things. And it's not like there's not enough information out there. You can go to the Centers for Disease Control's website. They have public service announcements. They have basic cleaning 
types of rules that people should be engaging in in order to protect themselves. They can come to organizations like ours, NFCB. They can go to the National Association of Broadcasters, which is providing information as well, and many other organizations that are out there to serve media and nonprofits and other organizations in your community with base information that will help you to educate your volunteers and staff about what they should and shouldn't be doing in a situation like this where there's a lot that's unknown, but there is actually quite a bit that is known as well. And if you can prevent illness this way and prevent disease through just basic reminding people to hand sanitize, reminding them to use wipes on tabletops and around equipment, avoiding handshaking and things like that, those kinds of basic sorts of things will really help stem the increase in illness. And so if we can just do those basic kinds of things, stations will benefit and station leaders in particular will benefit a lot in ensuring that their volunteers feel safe. Yeah. And moreover, it's an assurance that to your volunteers or your staff that you are paying attention, you do care and you're taking it seriously because you don't want to give the inadvertent uh, impression that you're not. Uh, because that often has consequences with regard to trust in station leadership. Yeah. If it seems as though you can't actually handle the the situation that's at hand, so I, absolutely. I, and for for a community station, I want to remind you who are out there at stations and maybe managing them, or if you're a listener to a station, it's important to ensure that these stations are asked to be accountable to their community to make sure that everybody is safe. Those of you who call into these stations uh, making requests or deciding to get on talk shows, make sure to check in on these stations and ask them that they're taking care of their volunteers and that they're trying to be safe themselves. I'm sure that they would appreciate it. And then I'm sure that they would appreciate the reminder that the community wants the station to protect its volunteers and protect its staff. Sort of on that note, Ernesto, as you know, I've been searching around to see how radio stations are responding to this as a station. And I've noticed quite a bit on social media where radio stations are posting uh, what their volunteer, what they're telling their volunteers um, as far as, you know, washing hands um, and also explaining to listeners that there might be more sporadic, uh, you know, on a college radio station that might be online only, they might have a more sporadic schedule because students aren't around and so I'd be curious what you think about that if if it's important for stations to be showing with the broader world out there on social media what their plans are for taking care of their staff and also um, for how it's going to impact what listeners are going to be hearing on the air. We had an interesting conversation with Brian earlier and the question was about our obligations as media. And for me... Our primary obligation is first and foremost trust. It is trust that the listeners can believe in us, trust the information that we give to them is relevant and that is meaningful and is informative in a situation like this. But it's also trust that this station cares about its people and cares about its community. So I think that kind of information is helpful for the community to know. And part of the one of the realities with some stations, a few that I've dealt with, is that they sometimes are always in contact with volunteers and sometimes they're not. And so social media communications serve an ancillary purpose of being an extra reminder for a volunteer. You can email everybody You can give them a call and remind them of these kinds of things. And social media serves as another way to remind those volunteers. But it also tells the listener, yes, we do care about our volunteers. Yes, we are taking precautions. And yes, you may experience a few hiccups here and there. But by and large, we're going to do everything we can to provide to you the radio that you enjoy. And I think a lot of listeners and listeners that I end up talking to about this and stations that I talk to that are sharing these messages are hearing from listeners and say, hey, I appreciate that because um, you all are friends to me. You all are part of my family, and hearing what's going on there is meaningful to me. I wonder if we can turn this conversation towards a sort of um, – I'm not sure how to frame what I'm about. Well, I know that one of the communities that's being impacted right away by the changes with the social distancing and the shutting down of live events are uh, artists 
and musicians and the types of people who live in our cities who, who make a living off of live events. And I wonder if community radio as a um, existing space in, in the air, not in the physical space where we have to be concerned about uh, transmitting a virus, but in the broadcast space, if there's a role that community stations around the country uh, could be playing or should be playing to support uh, these artists who are going to be facing harder I've been, times. I've been thinking a lot about that too. And uh, there was one instance in the San Francisco Bay Area recently where a performance group, a musical group, ended up at the last minute uh, streaming their performance live rather than canceling it. Yeah. And it, ma- it immediately made me think about radio and that as radio stations, we many of our radio stations have the ability to live stream with video or 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 just audio and and yeah are there are there cultural events that could still continue in this virtual form i think it's important for stations to remember and for listeners to remember that wherever you're at a community radio station and a college radio station is very much a part of the local creative economy that creative economy being the arts being bars, being live music venues, being things that people end up coming to for entertainment, enlightenment, enrichment culturally in those cities and towns. So this is also an opportunity for stations to decide how can our programming continue to support the creative economy, even as so many people are afraid to go out or many places are being closed or being limited because they can't necessarily have as many people do either state regulations now or state edicts or countywide edicts around gatherings. So how can stations do that? Maybe it's deciding to focus a bit more on local music and centering that more as a part of your programming. Maybe it is, as Jennifer pointed out, streaming some of these events. Um, You're seeing with some sporting events that are happening now, they're deciding to do closed arena events so maybe that event continues but there's no audience that's there present but just someone like a radio station to broadcast it what ways can a radio station creatively think about engaging with its larger creative local economy in ways that ensure those artists can still get remuneration, can still be supported, and can still get the exposure in those communities that they oftentimes so greatly depend on. Mm-hmm. You know, I've noticed, uh, well, I'm going to harken back to some early applications of college and, and what was called at the time educational radio, in which they thought of these stations could be the university of the air. And on often, you know, their programming was made up of lectures uh, and classes held on the air rather than, and now we think of them as online. And I noticed that, you know, bookstores and as well as universities and colleges are having to cancel author talks and other distinguished lectures. But, you know, these are things that could still happen via phone, via, via online, um, you know, by, by some online chat software or could be recorded. And there's ways that maybe stations could work with uh, local businesses and local in- cultural institutions, not just within music, but within, you know, some of the spoken arts so that uh, folks can still hear from an author, you know, in an author talk, which is often much more free form than the way they hear them in, in say, uh, a shorter interview on on a news program or even in, in a venue like, like a Fresh Air. Um, you know, maybe there's an opportunity for, for a collaboration then with with other uh, local businesses like a bookstore or a record store, which, uh, you know, may also be suffering as a result of people avoiding, you know, social interactions and going out in public. I think you bring bring to light there, Ernesto and, and Jennifer, you know, uh, lots of potential points of contact that can, you know, frankly, all happen via phone and via the Internet um, in That's ways. That's right. Yeah. Shift, you could shift the entire 
lineup of author talks at your local bookstore to your local radio station. That's a great idea. Mm-hmm. You know, and have the authors call in and, and, and put them through so that it can be both, you know, on your stream and, and on the airwaves. Um, and, and then everyone sort of sort of has a benefit in that. And, and you try to try to continue the cultural life uh, that really yeah. is, is, is such a center to, to so many communities. Keep it going in one way or another. And, and, and as well, maybe build up some ties that were on your list of things to do as we all have, right? That, that it's like, you know, wanting to build this bridge, maybe uh, the necessity kind of helps you to forge it at this moment in time. And in, in, in the way that Ernesto, as you sort of said, you know, when it comes to basic functions, you know, this is kind of a wake up call to making sure you have your, 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 your disaster preparedness yeah. plan together. This is sort of your uh, cultural preparedness plan. Well, and it, it makes me just want to double down again on this idea that in, in addition, addition to uh you know renewing your 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 commitment to to keeping the station open in a disaster i think that this is a good opportunity for community radio stations that are able to remain on the air to sort of um renew their commitment to their communities and what they're really there for and other institutions in their yeah, communities yeah, yeah yeah exactly not right because that is your community yeah yeah the in, the, the artistic institutions the the working artists um, the individuals who are uh, maybe practicing social distancing and haven't left the house in a while. I really think that um, today, and and the the fact that community radio, unlike your Facebook, well, maybe not unlike your Facebook feed, but in a in a way that is maybe uh, improved upon your Facebook feed or your Twitter feed, is very much uh, a live space shared by the people whom you share a physical space with. I I will also add that to everyone that is listening to this fantastic program, please consider making a donation to your local community radio station. I have talked to literally dozens of stations this week, and there is very much a very palatable fear that people will not support these organizations because of what is happening right now. And so they're doing their best to continue bringing you the coverage that you appreciate, helping brighten your days while all the other news is scaring the everything out of you and they're concerned that people may decide that these stations are not worth supporting well if these stations contribute something to your life if they are ensuring that you get the information that you need and if they're also providing comfort when you need it most in a time like this when you need it most please do not forget them when it's time to make a contribution i know a lot of us have more disposable income frankly because we're not able to go out as much a lot of things have been canceled as a result and so some of us may have a few extra dollars so please if you can kick it down to your local community radio station because they do genuinely need it absolutely uh, it's very easy to get behind uh, that message. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, did you learn anything? Are there questions still unanswered? Uh, what do you think is the role of college and community radio in a time of pandemic? Drop us a line, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. Of course, you can uh, get to us on Facebook and on Twitter. We always love to hear from you and the feedback we receive running up to this episode helped us to kind of frame our questions and and get a sense for for what things are like on the ground in stations and what things are like on the air out there. Uh, you can learn more. We'll have a lot of show notes up at our website for this particular episode, number 237. Thanks for putting those show notes together, Paul. <laughs> Go to radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. Eric, thank you for editing this show. Oh, a pleasure. And, uh, and uh, thanks to Jennifer for uh, for the idea and, and for helping get us uh, get us organized to be able to, well, to bring this show to everyone. It would be remiss if yeah. I didn't let the listeners know that they could listen to uh, the show that Brian Edward Teeker hosts and produced out of KPFA in Berkeley. It's a remarkable program because of the staffing that is available to that special radio station doing community radio um, with a paid staff. And um, I don't know if anybody is doing covering the news in that community, which is also part of the whole world uh, better than the good people at KPFA. So so listen to that um, every chance you get up front 
at KPFA, and we'll have a link in the show notes. And thank you, Ernesto Aguilar, who is, you are the uh, program director for the National Federation of Community Broadcasters, which you and, and the NFCB together do great work in supporting community radio stations of all kinds and all sizes housed in colleges, community centers, independent organizations, low power FM, full power FM, all of the above, helping them serve their communities. And, and right now you're there, I'm sure, answering the phone all the time. We really appreciate the work you're doing and really appreciate you took some time to join us today. Thank you all so, so much. And everybody, make sure to follow Radio Survivor and social media. Great stuff. Thank you, Ernesto. And thank you all for spending another hour with us.